You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio. 8.55am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Welcome to our 85th program of Think Again. Think Again is presented to you by Borderlands Cooperative, an organisation that has been dedicated to social change for more than 23 years. Uh, I am Jacques Boulet and my usual conversation partner, Jennifer, she won't be with us today, but I'll have a conversation about housing in this country with Abigail Lewis from Think Tank Per Capita. Welcome to Think Again, Abigail. Thank you so much for having me. Hmm. Throughout our Think Again programs, we have had several conversations and interviews about the various aspects of housing and how different groups of people in Australia are left in the housing doldrums. These doldrums, they go all the way from having no house at all to precarious and insecure housing and to unaffordable housing for lots of us on the one hand and to making a lot of money out of housing and finally living in houses that could easily house 20 people or a few families, and that costs several millions that have only one couple living in it. So housing and the housing sector in Australia, and not just here, is a spectacle that truly reveals the state of inequality, and let me just say it, of systemic exploitation in capitalist society. Uh, Abigail Lewis from the per capita think tank, who has kindly agreed to have a conversation with me about public and social or community housing, wrote an article in The Age in early December last year. She titled it, Good Social Housing Needs More Than Millions. And it was a piece that certainly resonated with what Jennifer and I have been talking about in previous programs. And listeners may remember our interviews with with a formerly homeless person, with Kate Shaw from Melbourne Uni and with Donna Stolzenberg from the Carla space two weeks ago. Abigail, again, welcome. And just to begin with, you started your article by mentioning the promised funding for social housing in the latest Victorian budget. And you commented about how it ticks many boxes, not just in housing matters as such, but also how it responded to economic and employment factors or needs. Would you mind elaborating a bit on that to start off our conversation? Absolutely, I can, Jack. Um, thanks for that and thanks for having me here. I was so glad uh, that my piece in The Age resonated with so many people in the sector um, and I'm really grateful for any conversations it inspires. Um Yeah, my reference at the start of the piece there was specifically to the SHARP proposal. So that's Mm -hmm. the Social Housing Acceleration and Renovation Program, which was um, a proposal that was launched by the sector peak bodies um, 
the Community Housing Industry Association, National Shelter, Homelessness Australia last year. And the Sharp proposal really drew on and brought together an authoritative body of housing research to argue that significant investment in social housing um, is not just something that can help us tackle our crisis of homelessness and housing insecurity in Australia, but would also function as a highly effective stimulus initiative to kickstart the recovery post-COVID. Um, and that's also been something that, you know, we've been arguing at, at per capita over the course of COVID-19. Um, and that's because construction efforts on that scale um, create thousands and thousands of jobs. Jobs mm. in the construction sector, obviously, um, which is huge in Australia, which represents 9% of all jobs in Australia. Uh, but then also jobs in procurement, downstream in the supply chain, um, in maintenance and upgrades of the new units, and then in support to the tenants that ultimately end up in those living in those units. Um, so the Sharp proposal estimates that building 30,000 social housing units over a four-year period would support between 15,500 and 18,000 full-time equivalent jobs. Mm. That um, modelling that they've done squares really nicely with with other research, for example, in the United States, that showed that on average, every 100 units of public housing built created 80 jobs in construction and then 30 ongoing jobs in supporting the people who moved into the units. And then, of course, you've got sort of further economic benefits of a cohort of tenants who might not have had secure enough housing to participate in the economy or in the labor market to the extent that they would like to now housed securely and able to find employment or to spend money in their local communities. Hmm. So that's why there's this broad consensus emerging now um, among economists and across the, the sector as well that building social housing is, is one of, if not the most effective way to create jobs and inject stimulus into the economy at a time when when that's really necessary. Mm. Um, now, I really do want to emphasize as well that, you know, I think we should be building housing for everyone, regardless of whether it create jobs or is good for the economy. But the fact that it does um, is just that kind of final factor in what makes yeah. it such a no-brainer. Yeah, which should take a lot of resistance against social housing and social programs generally away. We hope so, oh, yeah. Mm, that's right. Uh, in previous programs, you already differentiated uh, conversations we had then between several forms of social housing, and we urged the government to not go on ab abandoning public housing and include it in their planning and implementation. Well, you also make that argument in your article. So what is your take on this as in the article, as I said, you also specifically link the housing issue with homelessness. How do you see these fit together? And what is the research supporting this? Yeah, it is um, really important that we be clear what we mean when we say social housing, because social housing is, is really a catch-all phrase um, to describe subsidized housing that's provided to people on low incomes or who can't access, you know, the very tight, expensive private housing market for any number of reasons. And in Australia, the majority of social housing is still public housing. That's housing that is owned and managed by the state or territory government. But over mm -hmm. the last decade, we have seen considerable stock transfer to the community housing sector. Community housing being housing that is managed by non-government community housing providers in the private or not-for-profit sector. And really the biggest uh, difference between the two is that the public housing sector is able to provide housing for the most... Um, 
you know, needy, vulnerable or disadvantaged tenants, people who are at extreme risk of homelessness, for example, or already homeless. And rents are really strictly capped in public housing for that reason. Um, the community housing sector is able to accept Commonwealth rent assistance, for example, and can therefore set, rent, set, set rents slightly higher or accept tenants who can't access the private market but perhaps aren't uh, suited for public housing. And community housing providers can also do things like borrow against the value of their properties, which state governments um, can't do, which at least theoretically means um, community housing can grow faster than, than public housing can. Um, I think it's really important to be clear that growth in the community housing sector is is absolutely a good thing. We don't need to choose between community housing and public housing in Australia. We can provide both. They serve different needs in different ways. Um, but one of the needs that public housing serves specifically, and, and the reason that at per capita we've been pushing hard for investment in public housing specifically, is tackling homelessness. So yeah, there is a significant body of research to support the fact that providing good quality public housing in appropriate locations is the most effective way to keep people out of homelessness, the most effective by, by a large margin. The most significant data set to support that comes from right here in Melbourne, comes from the University of Melbourne's Journeys Home Study. Um, it's the only longitudinal study in the world that tracks homeless populations alongside um, populations who are at risk of homelessness or vulnerable. And it found that public housing is by far the strongest preventative factor against homelessness, the magnitude of its effect being many times greater than anything else. So if we're thinking about ending homelessness, something that is eminently doable, um, we do need to be thinking about significant investment in housing that can house the most at-risk tenants in the country. So those mm -hmm. who really do need a rent cap set at 25% rather than 30% of income, who will need more support to sustain their tenancies and, and catch up on rental arrears um, than an organisation that's required to remain financially viable uh, can necessarily provide. Um, and that's public housing. That's the answer mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. Actually, Jericho in The uh, Guardian three days ago made almost the same argument. Yeah. It's quite interesting. Yeah. I think it was on Monday or so. Oh, great. Uh, or, or end of last week, not, not sure anymore. <laughs> anyway, to let all of that sink in a little bit, let's have some music. Listening to the Rain by Adam Simmons, and that will be followed by a promo.
You're listening to Summer Programming on 3CR. You're listening to Think Again, 3CR 855 AM on your dial, 3CR digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Today I'm talking with Abigail Lewis about housing, especially the various possible approaches to address the housing crisis for the most vulnerable groups in Australia. Abigail, in our own research, as well as after listening to Kate Shaw a few weeks ago and now reading your article, why is it that programs like the Labour Party's Federal Social Housing Initiative of 2009 put in place after the financial crash, as you described it, in, and I'm quoting you, invigorated community housing whilst residualizing public housing? What do you think is behind this? You actually put both up there as well as possible alternatives. But is there a political reason for that? Or is it just that it is a third way type thing under neoliberalism that you do less and less public things and more and more or get closer to more private looking things? So what's your thought there? Mm, um, that is, of course, a huge, huge question. Um, I don't think there's one single answer to it. I think you're right that the dominant uh, neoliberal narrative has preferred a strong shift away from state provision of essential services towards private provision, uh, whether that's in the market or public-private partnerships or even kind of um, changing public sector bodies so that they are run more like private firms. The neoliberal view, of course, is that you know the market is more efficient than the state, um, and there's no question that that view has affected housing policy in Australia mm. over a generation, regardless of which political party has been running things. Um, my personal view on the social housing initiative is that um, it prioritised community housing over public housing, um, and it did that by committing that 75% of the dwellings constructed under the SHI would be transferred to community housing providers rather than remaining in in government ownership. Um, Because that was seen as the best way at the time to provide more housing faster in this really sort of crucial moment of of financial crisis. And community housing was was seen as very innovative at that time. You know, um, the idea was that CHPs could, uh, community housing providers, CHPs could leverage their assets and could therefore access private development capital and deliver more affordable housing options more quickly. And state government housing departments had been running at huge deficits for years and years. And and, and as a result, they just couldn't afford to invest in building new stock. And it was thought that CHPs would be more likely to achieve financial viability because they could charge higher rents, they could attract tax benefits, they could undertake commercial activities, you know, all these things that state governments can't do. Um, And the SHI was generally successful in in meeting its objectives. It exceeded its national target of building 19,200 social housing units at a time when nothing had been been built for decades. Um, And it it really injected uh, finance and stock into a sector that had not been invested in in decades and and hasn't been invested invested in again since. Um, and tenants, some of the reviews of the SHI have found that, te- you know, tenants felt that the housing really supported their economic and social participation. And a high proportion of those units did house tenants who had been homeless in the past. Um, so it succeeded in, in a lot of ways, but there were mm. also lessons to learn from the SHI. 
Mm-hmm. And those mm-hmm. were some of the issues around, you know, the requirement for community housing providers to remain financially viable, meaning that tenants who were at highest risk or who had the highest needs um, were left behind. You know, we saw yeah. things like CHPs um, cherry picking tenants that were seen as more likely uh, to be able to pay higher rents or, you know, less likely to be um you know, problematic in inverted commas. And some we actually saw, sometimes we saw CHPs using their capacity to, to do that as an advertising tool with the mm-hmm. local community that might have opposed, you know, new social housing units being built um, and, you know, publicly highlighting their greater capacity to evict tenants um, as an advantage of community housing over public housing. And that's really not what we want from social mm-hmm. housing because evictions from social housing are most likely going to be evictions into homelessness and we don't need to pit community housing against public housing, you know, thereby further residualizing and stigmatizing um, public yep. housing. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And then um, fi- finally, you know, CHPs ultimately didn't find it as easy to secure private finance as had been expected. Um, and that, mm-hmm. that public housing units were sacrificed for the promise of overall growth in community housing that hasn't necessarily materialized. So what we're mm-hmm. trying to keep in everyone's mind at per capita is, is that public housing needs to remain a priority if we're going to properly address homelessness and housing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Certainly would agree with that. Mm-hmm. A considerable section of your article, however, makes also more qualitative arguments about what and especially how dwellings need to be built if they are to be responsive to the diversity of existing needs. You mention age and disability as factors to be considered. For probably two minutes or so before we need another break, could yeah. you be, say a bit more about that? Yeah, these are other lessons that we learned from the SHI. Um, as we call for investment in this kind of mass construction of social housing, we also need to make sure that we use the opportunity to build the right kind of social housing so that we don't turn around in 10 or 20 years and realize that what we've built is no longer fit for use. Um, A big part of that is energy efficiency. And it was great to see the Victorian government has promised to build all new units to seven star efficiency standards. But at per capita, we've also been advocating for new units to be built to universal design standards. So that's in recognition of the fact that Social tenants are aging, around a third are over 55 and 14% are over 75. And then two in five social households um, include a tenant living with disability and the existing stock caters really poorly for those tenants to the point where they're actually often unable to live in those units and have to stay on the waiting list. Um, So we've been pushing for universal design standards, which require units to be built with features that are usable regardless of a person's age or mobility. So imagine single level housing, um, wide doorways for wheelchair access, worktops at different heights, walk-in showers rather than a shower over a tub. Um, Really simple stuff to ensure that not only is our housing accessible for tenants today, but it continues to be so for, you know, 10, 20 years to come. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. That's really an important aspect, I think, of of housing generally and that yeah. particularly housing shouldn't be built for uh, environmental standards which we now yeah. know are not adequate absolutely yeah. and on that note let's go to another promo so here you are too foreign for home too foreign for here never enough for both Ijuoma umebinyo Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? 
and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. You're listening to Think Again, 3CR 855 AM on your dial, 3CR digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Today we're again talking about housing, one of the seemingly permanent topics of discussion and discontent in our country and not just here. We're talking with Abigail Lewis from Per Capita, who's just written an article about chance we seem to have doing something quite different about housing this time around after the Victorian government's promise to inject more than $5 billion in the social housing sector. So, Abigail, in our own Borderlands research, because we have done quite a bit of research in the housing sector as well, especially we have been working with people and organisations dealing with and living in alternative forms of housing beyond private ownership and private renting. Examples like cooperative housing, co-housing. Uh, we have encountered some deep questioning in that research of the myth of the Australian dream of home ownership. Internationally, countries with cooperative housing are widespread and co-housing is dramatically increasing in size and in numbers. What is your and probably per capita's take on the possible plurality of housing ownership or residence forms? Mm. Yeah, it's great to hear this question because there is really some exciting work being done on different types of housing. Um, obviously, as you said, home ownership remains this kind of mythical Australian dream. Um, but we do have to accept that the reality is that more and more people are not going to be able to access that. Um, at Per Capita, our work in this space has been focused on older women who are experiencing housing stress at a rate that has just grown exponentially over the last 10 years. Um, that might be because, you know, family breakdown and, and so they lose they lose access to a property that their, their partner owned or um, just purely not being able to get the capital together as a single woman to enter home ownership in the first place. Um, and in fact, the older women that we've spoken to in our research, so we conducted a co-design project called Mutual Appreciation in 2019 where we, um, we worked with older women facing financial security to kind of identify an ideal form of housing for them as they aged. Um, and they described a kind of triple threat in housing as they age. So they're simultaneously facing housing insecurity, increasing care needs and social isolation. And when we worked with them to identify, you know, what kind of housing would best help them to face that triple threat, they were extremely enthusiastic about the idea of large-scale co-housing, um, which you just mentioned. Um, so that refers to, you know, a building of around uh, usually 25 to 30 units built around a model of shared accommodation and care. So older women live in independent accommodation on the same property, but then they have access to shared communal areas, spaces for group cooking, dining, gardens. Um, and then importantly, they also share responsibility for running the community. So they have decision-making power, they control budgets for repairs and maintenance, they allocate tenancies, renew leases, um, all decisions that affect the collective. And all of that facilitates social connection and mutual support, mm -hmm. which women were telling us, you know, is, is as important to them as housing security um, and tenure. Mm -hmm. And um, 
the responses from the older women we were working with was just almost unanimous. I mean, they were saying they would move into a building like that tomorrow if they could. And even some of the women who owned their own homes outright were saying that they'd prefer to move into co-housing as they aged, Um, which is very interesting when you consider that we're sort of often putting pressure on older homeowners to downsize, to free up stock in the market without really offering them an alternative. So I think co-housing is a really interesting and exciting option that, yeah, deserves a much closer look in Australia than it's currently getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, particularly also because of the fact that cooperative housing is so widespread and, you know, like 20% or so like that uh, of all housing in Sweden, for example, is cooperatively housed. Yeah. So it's a lot of, of really good examples of that and a lot of experience. And we've got, after all, here in Victoria, the common equity housing yes. groups, like 120 cooperatives. We have Murundaka in Heidelberg, uh, which came about, I think, about six, seven years ago. No, probably longer yeah. than 11 years ago. So there's a lot of, of, of story to be being built up at the moment in, uh, in Victoria. Yeah, there's so many fantastic sort of pilot, um, mm-hmm. you know, pilot programs and, and innovative programs, but there's just not that kind of um, wider funding for them to be able to, to, to build that up to scale and, and get the publicity around it. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, hopefully that, that changes over the next few years. Yeah, was that group you worked with uh, with the older women housing problems the Haag group? Um, we are we have been connected with the Haag group in okay. the past. Um, mm. but I don't think they they weren't our um, sort of official partners on, uh-huh. on that project because mm. we have done some work with them in the yeah, past anyway. Yeah, it looks as if there's a lot of overlap between what you guys are doing and what we guys yeah. have been doing. Yeah. Anyway, we're coming to the end of our program. Uh, For information about how you can help listeners campaign for more public housing and support for people who are homeless, go online to Everybody's Home or or just call the relevant state and federal ministers. They need to know that they're being watched. Another possibility would be to go to the Kala place, which we uh, had an interview about two weeks ago. Thanks for listening to Think Again on 3CR Community Radio with me, Jacques Poulet, and today with Abigail Abigail Lewis from Think Tank Per Capita. Thanks again, Abigail, for sharing your understanding and wisdom with us today. And this meeting between a think tank and Think Again was a great encounter, I think, and we should probably follow this up more. And to our listeners, remember, if you do want to send us a message or ask about anything from today's program, you can email Borderlands, borders at borderlands.org.au. Just put Think Again in the subject line. Our programs are available by podcast and the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. Thank you to Clive Bourne for his technical support and for choosing the music for this program while Abigail and I connected remotely. Meanwhile, stay tuned for the following program, Jailbreak, which gives a voice to prison inmates, their families and friends. And to bring us into this program, we have World Turning by Yoto Yindi. <laughs>